I realize no one ever doubts I mean what I say. The problem occasionally is I say all that I mean. It's 2010. President Barack Obama approaches a podium at a signing ceremony for a piece of historic legislation. The healthcare overhaul that would bear his name, the Affordable Care Act. It's huge. When he arrives at the podium, the man who introduced him embraces Obama and whispers in his ear, this is a big fucking deal. Obama smiles and thanks him. The microphone picked it all up. The F-bomb was broadcast on national television as millions watched. It's a part of history, the official record. That man was Vice President of the United States, Joseph Robinette Biden. Now he's running for president himself for the third time with a stated message of defeating President Trump and fixing a broken nation, a supposed goal of returning to the status quo, going back to some mythical, blissful nation that existed before Trump. So who is this guy? Who is Joe Biden? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast where we examine power by looking at the people who have it. This week, we're looking into former Vice President Joe Biden. Biden has been in the public eye for decades, including eight years as the number two to the most powerful man in the world. During that time, you might have bought into this image of Biden as America's fun uncle bromancing about with President Obama, this experienced political brawler helping his less experienced, more cerebral boss push legislation through. A dude who really loves a good Amtrak ride. A man who has overcome extreme personal tragedy. Now, he's running for president, and has run for president before, on his experience. But what is that experience, and how has it changed America? I brought together some reporters who've been following his career for years, from the Senate to the White House to quote-unquote retirement to maybe the White House again. I talked to Ryan Grimm. He runs Washington coverage for The Intercept, a news outlet I legitimately call myself a stan of. And he's covered D.C. for decades. He just put out this great book called We've Got People, which covers the future of big money in politics. But Joe Biden didn't start off with big money. He was born in the 19, what, 1942 in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just Scrantoner. And his father had some success earlier before Biden was born, but had fallen on pretty hard times by the mm-hmm. time Biden was born. They moved around looking for work and they wound up in Delaware. His father wound up clawing his way back into the middle class, becoming a successful car dealer, mm-hmm. but nothing in the way of a Kennedy or any right. kind of other legacy, you know, legacy or spoon in his mouth. Biden did well in school and played football. He struggled with a stutter, but worked through it. Although, according to a recent piece in The Atlantic, the stutter may be to blame for many of the gaffes and vocal stumbles Biden is famous for. As a college student, he used the same student deferral we mentioned earlier in the season, the one Senator Mitch McConnell used to avoid being shipped off to Vietnam, and later stays out of the military due to childhood asthma. So he gets involved in local Delaware politics, the Newcastle City Council, and then he runs for Senate. It was a super, super long shot race against an incumbent for a thus far pretty red seat. 
and he was really unknown at the time by any of the, like, 40 people in Delaware. It might surprise you now, but his campaign was super grassroots. His sister ran it. He relied on actually meeting his voters face-to-face. It was all very low-budget. Biden, at the time, wasn't even old enough to be senator. The election was a few weeks before his 30th birthday. He even runs on his youth versus his opponent, Kale Boggs. Slate dug up a few of Biden's old ads, like, Kale Boggs' generation dreamed of conquering polio. Joe Biden's generation dreams of conquering heroin. And then on the bottom, it said, Joe Biden, he understands what's happening today. And he wins by like 3,000 votes from voters from one side of the state to the other, which is pretty close, actually, because it's Delaware. And so Biden absolutely did, you know, fight and claw to get where he was, one of the youngest senators ever elected and one of the youngest in history. Biden is this Scranton man, that's Pennsylvania, who ends up being a Delaware senator. And the Delawareness of Delaware is actually really important to who Joe Biden is. Delaware is an extremely interesting state. So in the 1980s, due to some Supreme Court rulings that had allowed companies uh, to move to particular states and use their consumer protection laws when deciding what they're going to export. It was, in other words, it started with a credit card company that was in Nebraska that wanted to sell credit cards in Minnesota that had higher interest rates than Minnesota law allowed. That went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, you know what, that's fine. You're based in Nebraska. You All you have to do is follow Nebraska laws. And so Delaware said to itself, oh, so if we have no laws, then all of the companies will come headquarter here and do their business out of here. And, you know, we all pay our bills online now, but for decades, everybody was sending their credit card bills to Wilmington, Delaware. And if anybody stopped to wonder why that was, it was because of the Delaware way that had gotten together to say, the way to attract big business to our state is to make sure that there are no laws and they can do whatever they want. They don't have to pay taxes. They don't have to follow any consumer protection laws. Right. I believe that led to the 2016 story that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump had businesses incorporated in the same building in Delaware just right. to, yes. just so that they could benefit from the same thing. Yeah, there's millions of, yeah. millions of businesses, literally. This will shape how Biden legislates. Delaware is a very important part of his story. But between the joy of his victory and taking office, Biden is struck with personal tragedy. He told the story in a Yale commencement speech in 2015. Six weeks after my election, my whole world was altered forever. While I was in Washington hiring staff, I got a phone call. My wife and three children were Christmas shopping. Tractor trailer broadsided in and killed my wife and killed my daughter. And they weren't sure that my sons would live. Biden almost didn't take office. He got sworn in at the hospital with his sons and did eventually take office, but didn't get an apartment in D.C., opting for Amtrak commuting instead. We have a promising 30-year-old politician working through horrible grief, finding his way through the Senate. How'd Biden get on his feet? See, I went to the big guys for the money. I was ready to prostitute myself in the, man- the manner in which I talk about it. But what happened was they said, come back when you're 40, son. And so I had to go out. Well, I had to go to a number of small contributors. 
We too went to the big guys for money, but we got it. Back to Delaware. Sorry, folks, it's, it's important. There's something called the Delaware Way, and it's very Amelia Bedelia. And this actually goes back to pre-revolutionary America. After every election, they go down to this place in Georgetown, Delaware, and they have a little parade where they literally bury a hatchet. The, the guy who lost and the guy who won, who's guys back then, would bury a hatchet and have a little parade, and it would symbolize kind of the coming together of the parties after this difficult affair, which, is, as you can imagine, is kind of a nice thing if the alternative is to get your head cut off. Right. <laughs> and so it, it came to symbolize a bunch of people in a room making decisions for the entire state. And there haven't really been many competitive elections in Delaware. The, the two parties, they would make deals. Right. They'd say, you get the governorship this year, we'll take the Senate seat. And there wasn't a whole lot of ideological difference between the two parties. And in fact, Joe Biden began in the 60s uh, with Republican inclinations. He described himself as kind of a Republican-leaning person. And his first foray into politics was to work on behalf of a Republican candidate for governor overthrowing a, a Democratic uh, governor who won. The Republican won. And that, interestingly, it was because Biden felt like the Democratic governor was too racist. Uh, and the Republican was more supportive of civil rights in the 60s than the Democrat was. Uh, Biden eventually joined the Democratic Party and very quickly rises to the ranks. Much like Amelia Bedelia's antics often got her in trouble, Burying the hatchet has gotten Biden in some trouble. He very much did take that Delaware way with him mm -hmm. and was very eager to work with both Republicans, liberal and conservative Republicans, as well as segregationist kind of right-wing Democrats. And the people he was most likely to get into fights with were actually on the left. Right. You know, he felt like the way he could distinguish himself was as kind of a counter to the counterculture the anti-war protesters, mm -hmm. the hippies. He wanted to signify to the white working class that he understood where they were coming from and that he was kind of their tribune. Bussing. You may remember it coming up in the Democratic debate earlier in 2019 when Senator Kamala Harris hit Biden hard on the issue. She was bussed to a different school. It's complicated, but after Brown versus Board of Education, a Supreme Court ruling that separate but equal wasn't very equal, America's schools had to be integrated, which wouldn't be easy. There was, and still is, even today, massive segregation and massive resistance to desegregation of public schools. In some cases, the National Guard had to be called in. There were riots. Some districts, after months and years of resisting integration, bus students between neighborhoods to integrate schools. It happened all over the country, from Boston to Alabama. Of course, this all comes back to Delaware. Wilmington, Delaware was court-ordered to implement busing. Biden had supported busing in his Senate campaign, but he began to solidly vote against busing measures and support anti-busing measures. He could say he supports integration, but just specifically oppose busing and get away with it. Ryan Grimm at The Intercept told me this. And, you know, nothing gets families more fired up than neighborhood school. And it's as true today as it was back then. And Biden rode that wave and stood on the side of the people who were fighting, fighting the busing efforts. He became one of the loudest voices and he reached out to James Eastland, who was this absolutely vitriolic, white supremacist, Democratic senator 
from the South to try to come up with legislation that would basically exempt a lot of school districts, white school districts, from having to participate in these busing schemes. Senator Jesse Helms, a full-on segregationist, puts forth an explicitly anti-busing amendment that would make it impossible to punish schools who fail to integrate. Joe Biden rose to speak. I am sure it comes as a surprise to some of my colleagues that a senator with a voting record such as mine stands up and supports, at least in principle, an amendment on the question of busing offered by a senator with the record such as that as the senator from North Carolina. Helms responds, quote, the senator from North Carolina welcomes the senator from Delaware to the ranks of the enlightened, end quote. Helms might have been a persistent supporter of racial segregation, but, I mean, you got to bury the hatchet, right? Biden would run for president the first time. Because he was always there in the background and sometimes trying to emerge to the foreground. First ran for president in 88, then ran again in 2008, and now here he is. Third time's a charm, 2020. His 1988 campaign mirrored his current one in some respects. The New York Times reported he ran on being a stabilizing force in unstable times. But it differed in others. He ran as young blood. He listened to the Les Miserables soundtrack constantly on his campaign bus to his staffer's chagrin. And the whole thing was kind of a disaster. He got caught plagiarizing speeches, lying about his academic record. It's like he just wasn't ready to run for president. So why'd he do it? Back in 1987, Time Magazine spoke to his son, Hunter, who had told Joe, if you don't do it now, I couldn't see you doing it some other time. And Joe agreed, but dropped out. And in the Senate focused on, among other things, the Supreme Court and crime. Here's Natasha Karecki. She's an award-winning, long-time journalist, and she's covering Biden's campaign for Politico this year. He would probably point to lots and lots of examples of different efforts that he's made over time where, and and he's done this sometimes at his own peril, (laughs) talking about how he's reached across the aisle and has been able to. But I would say the biggest thing I would point to is that you do hear a lot of Republicans and a lot of independents say they're okay with him. You know, even as a Democrat, even as in, as polarized of a moment that America is in right now, um, you do kind of see people saying, ah, you know, I, I like Joe, you know, kind of thing. Back to reaching across the aisle, burying the hatchet. As chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Biden oversaw two notable Supreme Court confirmation hearings. He was... Again, chairman of the Judiciary Committee, and this was the hearing of Ronald Reagan's nominee to the Supreme Court, Robert Bork, and he helped get that defeated. It's complicated, but it's a genuine contribution to the public Mm -hmm. was his leadership or his role in defeating Bork, Mm -hmm. who was a nominee for the Supreme Court. So it is quite probable that abortion restrictions deep and profound restrictions, if not the outright abolition of abortion, would have happened had Bork made it onto the Supreme Court. Bork was a hugely conservative judge, and Biden, in his role on the Judiciary Committee, was hugely important to defeating Bork. But the Bork-Biden battle is also credited with ushering in our modern era of a politically charged Supreme Court nomination process. Many people— Biden among them, took issue with Bork's nomination because of his beliefs, not 
because of his experience. Whether or not you support a conservative judiciary, Bork's defeat was a major step towards the politically charged judiciary we have today. Biden would quickly, again, bury the hatchet. George H.W. Bush nominated a judge named Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court. A former colleague of Thomas's, Anita Hill, came forward with accusations of workplace sexual harassment. Less impressive on that score was his chairmanship of the Anita Hill hearings, mm -hmm. which was just an, an utter disaster for the country, for Anita Hill, yeah. for the Supreme Court. And it's a disaster that we're still living with today. And he at the time was the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And so he presided over the confirmation hearings of Clarence Thomas, who had been nominated to the Supreme Court. And at that time, that is when Anita Hill came forward and she accused Thomas of sexual harassment. And this is a moment in history that is very much, it's just really burned into the minds of a lot of people because it was so historic and it was, all the hearings were broadcast live. And this wasn't during the cable news era that we know of now. This was back at a time, and I was alive, this was back at a time when there wasn't that much competition for news on the air. So I would say that it was a moment that the nation was really captivated by her story, by this whole fight. It's very memorable to people. The Anita Hill story is complex. And this episode isn't about that. There's a lot of great material on it if you want to dig in further. But on Biden, as Republican senators attacked Hill, Biden, who was running the hearings, refused to step in and stop them from saying things like this. I've got to determine what your motivation might be. Are you a scorned woman? Do you have a militant attitude relative to the area of civil rights? Do you have a martyr complex? The issue of fantasy has arisen. Are you interested in writing a book? The witness did not say anything to the FBI about uh, the described size of his penis, the description of the movie Long Dong Silver, about the pubic hair in the coke. I did think that uh, Senator Specter pointed out some inconsistencies. You testified this morning in response to Senator Biden that the most embarrassing question involved, this is not too bad, women's large breasts, that's a word we use all the time, that was the most embarrassing aspect of what Judge Thomas had said to you. Biden let all of that happen and responded with, It is appropriate to ask Professor Hill anything any member wishes to ask her to plumb the depths of her credibility. Furthermore, Biden himself treated Hill incredulously and didn't give time to two witnesses who could have corroborated her claims. Although Biden ended up voting against the confirmation of Clarence Thomas, who sits on the Supreme Court today, the legacy of Biden's failure here, that's his experience, echoes through the Kavanaugh hearings. His next big moment in the Senate would be a massive crime bill that he was a primary proponent of. He said, give me the crime issue and you'll never have to worry about it again. And people have to remember that crime rates were rising a lot. 
throughout the 1970s, and it was much more of a salient issue, political issue, than it is today with crime rates relatively lower. And so Democrats were looking for a way out of it, and Biden was offering that solution. Right. He was going to say, we're going to get so tough on crime that nobody's going to be able to call us soft on crime. And that eventually bleeds into his 1994 crime bill, which is the Biden crime bill, which he's famous for. It includes the Violence Against Women Act, but it also includes kind of punctuation marks, exclamation marks on a lot of what he had done in the 80s, three strikes stuff, mandatory minimums, and really moving in a militant direction when it comes to locking people up. And you see from the 80s to today, prison population just absolutely explode. He was also a major pusher of the war on drugs. But that was way back in the 90s. I'm sure he doesn't think cannabis is a gateway drug anymore. Truth of the matter is, we, there's not nearly been enough evidence that has been uh, 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 acquired as to whether or not it is a gateway drug. It's, it's a debate. That clip? 2019. According to Ryan Grimm at The Intercept, Biden even pushed President Reagan to the right on crime. So in the 1980s, he really begins the push towards mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. A lot of people date it to Reagan, and Reagan certainly deserves an awful lot of blame because he embraced it later on. Right. But it was actually Biden working with Strom Thurmond, proud segregationist, who pressured the Reagan administration to be tougher on crime. To, according to Biden, Reagan wasn't tough enough. Biden's angle toward crime and this bill is interesting. The bill included some more liberal portions, like gun control measures and the Violence Against Women Act. But it's hugely criticized for disproportionately affecting people of color and increasing mass incarceration. However, PolitiFact spoke to some legal experts and said the bill may not have actually increased mass incarceration and the rate of growth actually slowed down. But Biden's intent was to be tough on crime, and his previous rhetoric led to someone like Reagan being tougher on crime. Surely Biden's goal wasn't to increase racial inequality and put more people in prison, and the true impact of this specific bill on mass incarceration is hard to quantify. But all of this plays into Biden's experience in the Senate. The crime bill is probably his most major accomplishment, and decisions like this have a shadow of unintended consequences. Anyway, I know you folks are itching to get back to Delaware. Delaware's other big constituency group, as we talked about earlier, is giant corporations seeking the corporate-friendly laws of the state. One of the biggest businesses in Delaware is banks and creditors. Remember how in the Elizabeth Warren episode we talked about her butting heads with Biden over bankruptcy? Well, let's go fucking Rashomon on this and look at it from Biden's perspective. One of the biggest companies in Delaware was MBNA, a credit card issuer. They have since been acquired by Bank of America. They were Biden's top campaign donor in 1996. He'd go on, in the Senate, to oppose legislation that would force credit card companies to make interest simpler to understand, and legislation that would disallow judge shopping in bankruptcy cases, which is where creditors find a judge that will rule their way and file the suit there. It isn't just Mitch McConnell who has a curious relationship with corporate benefactors. Biden went on a 10-year crusade on behalf of MBNA, which was the major credit card issuer in Delaware at the time. Now it's been absorbed by Bank of America to reform bankruptcy laws. And that's actually how he met Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. Elizabeth Warren was a bankruptcy professor who fought him for 10 years 
on that legislation. He eventually prevailed. And there, a couple of those provisions are salient today. One of them, he blocked an amendment that would have made it easier for people to discharge medical debt in a bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. But now if you, if you file for bankruptcy, a lot of that medical debt you can't even get rid of. And he did the same for private student loan debt. At the time, private student loan debt could be dischargeable in bankruptcy. And Biden got rid of that. Uh, there are a lot of different salient measures inside that bankruptcy bill. One of the most profound was his move to make it so that students could not discharge private student loans. And so up until that time, you could not discharge public loans. Yeah. But those are limited. Everybody, you know, you can only get so many public loans. And so that wasn't driving a student debt crisis and it wasn't driving up tuition and room and board. And it wasn't fueling the creation of all of these fly-by-night for-profit colleges. And after Biden said, well, you can't discharge private student loan debt in bankruptcy either. Right. That's when the student lending crisis really takes off. Right. When the, the, the lenders realized just how much yep. they could squeeze out of the American youth. The lenders are like, oh, wait, if we can convince this 18-year-old mm -hmm. to take out a $100,000 loan when they're completely destitute, they can't actually file for bankruptcy on, right. on that debt. And so we can hound them for the rest of their lives to the point where people are now having their social security checks garnished yeah. to pay student loans. These corporations and their employees are voters Biden has to worry about. They're his constituents. And that's part of what makes his decades of experience so complicated. If you look at the Joe Biden who ran in 1988 and the Joe Biden now, I think he's just a completely different person. He's been in the Senate for 40 years. And when you're in the Senate for that long, there are just, you know, there's so much on your record. There's votes you've taken. There's clips of you. There's just so much stuff to dredge up. And he's getting it every couple days, especially in the beginning. He's getting hammered with all of it. And he's having to answer. And now he makes a joke of it. He says, oh, people ask me what I said in 1972, and then everyone will laugh. Um, and it's true. People are asking for that. And I think if you're a strategist on the other side, you're going to just want to keep pointing at his longevity in the Senate, not as something that's, oh, it's a strength that he has experience. It's more he's old. <laughs> we need new blood. We need, you know, a new vision for America. He spends these years and years in the Senate and then runs for president again in the 2008 election. His campaign falters pretty quickly as the election becomes the Obama-Clinton show. And thus begins the most publicized political bromance of all time. Obama picks Biden as his vice president. So how would Biden change? Like, look at the credit card situation. Biden's chief economic advisor told the New York Times, quote, when you are a senator from a state with a lot of credit card and financial interests, you have a different constituency than when you are vice president. But just how progressive would the Obama-Biden White House be? Obama has been pretty open about this. He said the country's only ready for so much change. Barack Hussein Obama is enough for them. When he came on board, Obama, who of course was like not, hadn't even finished his first full term in off as a U.S. senator, was just sort of seen as maybe, you know, there was all these questions of whether he was not experienced enough and so forth. And Biden at the time brought that experience, could offer that. Biden is super popular as vice president. He plays hard into the whole likable Uncle Joe, gaff-making, aviator-wearing character. 
it's almost like he let the Onion's portrayal of him define him. But there is truly something special about how he interacts with people. Here's Natasha Karecki at Politico again. I would say if Biden has a superpower, and we've written about this in the past, and it doesn't have as much to do with legislation and so forth, I think his superpower is that because he has experienced death and tragedy so personally early on, and then again with his son Bo dying, he has made it sort of part of his public persona, part of his public service to reach out to people who have lost loved ones. The Sandy Hook tragedy, for instance, he will tell the story as well. Um, he sat down with all the parents after that. He also was asked to talk to the law enforcement officers who had to find the children who had been killed. And he has this ability, and I hear this again and again from people across the country, that to break right through that and say, look, I know where you are. I know the dark place you're in right now. And here's some things I can tell you. There's going to be a point, I swear to you, where you'll think of that person and you'll smile before you cry. He would come in, even as vice president, unannounced, no press release or anything, go to a funeral for some mayor in a little town whose wife died. Or he would call the firefighter whose mother died, or whatever it was. That was just something that it was very personal to him. He felt a connection with people, and they remember it. Joe Biden is a genuinely warm, compassionate person. When you're with him, you feel like he's genuinely in the moment there with you. He does give off this regular guy vibe. On the other hand, he's the only senator that I've ever tried to like get away from. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I cover Congress, and so he was still senator for several years when I first got to the Hill. And I remember one time in particular, I was interviewing him, I forget about what, and it was only like a one question thing. Yeah. We finish and he just keeps talking. Yeah. And talking and talking. <laughs> and then further, I'm like asking a few questions here or there. And then I turn off the tape recorder, put the tape recorder in my pocket, and I take the notebook, put the notebook in my pocket, put the pen away, yeah. got my hands behind my back. Like I'm trying to give every signal. Yeah, like, you're ready to go. <laughs> I got work to do, man. <laughs> like, you know, this, this, this is great. Yeah. And the stories that you see him tell on the podium, you know, there's just stories like that just pouring out. And other reporters have had that same experience with him that he just loves to talk. Personal tragedy would, again, play a role in Biden's life in 2015 when one of his two remaining sons, Bo, died of brain cancer. Joe himself had suffered with a brain ailment of his own, living through an aneurysm shortly after his 1988 race that many thought he wouldn't recover from. Bo's death played a role in Biden not running for president in 2016. But now, in the 2020 election, he's running for president again on the supposed strength of the Obama White House, even though Obama has yet to endorse him at all. It's something the media harangues him for quite a bit. Progressive and mainstream media has been going after Biden as centrist, out of touch, and gaff-prone. Is that fair? Here's Natasha Karecki from Politico. What I see is often he is portrayed as this feeble old man who cannot complete a sentence. I think that's how he's portrayed a lot. And a lot of it is his own fault because in the debates, he's dumbly, he steps on his own words, he doesn't finish in time, he cuts himself off, all that stuff. 
But when he's on the trail, I mean, I watched him at this forum, at this Latino Asian Coalition forum in Iowa, and it was long. It was like two and a half hours of Joe Biden just speaking (laughs) about all this policy, all this ins and outs. He remembered everything inside and out. You challenge him on anything, he will cite the law or cite the statute. He will give you all these different examples of things. And at one point in that talk, that was when he said poor children should get the same education as white children. I mean, all children. Um, That is the only thing that was reported out of that two and a half hours was that he corrected himself immediately. No, it was not good that he slipped or said that or that he or he was even at a point where that would come out of his mouth. But because that kind of stuff happens No one sees the rest of it. No one sees all the other stuff where he's citing his experience. He gave the talk about how he spoke to these law enforcement officers who were having a hard time after Sandy Hook and tried counseling them. I mean, those kinds of stories, they just don't come across because he misspeaks or he says something dumb like that, and that's it. That's all that's covered. I was there. No one noticed in the room. I mean, it was so fast that... And there was so much said that you didn't notice. So nobody who was sitting there who's from the general public knows now. People who were monitoring it through a live stream or oppo who are watching every single word, they then seize on these things and blast them out or push them to reporters and so forth. Now, I'm not saying that the other side doesn't do the same thing. I'm just saying that is sometimes that dynamic and it ends up just completely blotting out the sun and you don't see anything else. Other criticisms of Biden have been that he's this establishment candidate, whatever that even means at this point. If you had to pick somebody in this field who's more of the establishment candidate, certainly Biden. He's been part of the establishment. He is the establishment for so long. Certainly this field is filled with people, U.S. senators for certain. And so he's not alone in having represented Washington. However, he spent the most time there. He has family who's profited extensively from contracts in the time that he held influential office. I'm not saying that there was accusations of wrongdoing, but that's there. And it's something that's being very closely scrutinized right now. A lot of this show deals with cynicism. Not cynicism when incorrectly used to mean pessimism, but the real definition, the idea that people only act in their own self-interest. Is that what Biden does? Is it what all politicians do, especially those with a desire to be president? Biden is someone who truly seems to connect with people. He has an amazing ability to relate to people who are experiencing personal tragedy out of a deep empathy from his past. And he's great at, to quote our current president, Seeing the good in people on both sides, even when the good may not be there. He knows how to fight for his constituents, even when they're segregationists and credit card companies. Biden runs on experience, which means we should examine that experience. He's been around so long that the decisions he has made and the legislation he's passed have both improved our lives as well as had significant unintended consequences. We probably, definitely, missed some stuff here. When covering somebody who's had a career as long as Joe Biden has, it's impossible to touch on everything. But Biden's decisions have impacted many aspects of your life. Use a credit card? Have a student loan? Dealt with law enforcement? That's all part of Biden's experience, the very experience he sells himself on. In a field where we have diverse progressives, young blood, and new ideas— 
Is experienced hatchet barrier Joe Biden the right man to help fix a democracy that may be unfixable? Next week, we look at another man with a very different vision of America and a very different backstory. Independent Senator Bernie Sanders. A sincere thank you to our guests, Ryan Grimm of The Intercept and Natasha Karecki of Politico. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've been enjoying the show, don't forget to rate and subscribe and tell all your friends. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, senior producer and writer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Editing and mixing by Ernie Indradat. Production support from Rob Baynard, Amanda Earle, Margot Wall, and Faluke Tuakli. Emily Feld and David Zwick are our producers in Los Angeles. PJ Evans provided additional research. Our executive producers are Sarah Frank, Brett Kushner, and Mangesh Hadakuder. And now this, Tina Zaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to Matt McDonough, Devin Rogerino, and Elias Acevedo for their excellent work on the original video series of Who Is, which you can find on Facebook and YouTube.